Chapter Fourteen of Shorty McCabe by Sewell Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. You never can tell, though. The next thing I hears from Sadie is that she's so tickled over that Miriam mix-up that she wakes up in the night to snicker at it. That makes me feel a lot easier in my mind, and just by way of being reckless, I starts out to buy a bull pup. I'd have got him too if it hadn't been for Doc Pinfoodle. Seeing the way things turned out, though, I don't bear no grudge. It was the doc I met first. I'd noticed him drifting up and down the stairs once or twice, but didn't pipe him off special. There's too many freaks around 42nd Street to keep cases on all of them. But one day about a month ago, I was sitting in the front office here, getting the earache from hearing Swifty Joe tell about what he meant to do to Gans that last time, when the door swings open so hard it most takes the hinges off, and we sees a streak of arms and legs and tall hat making a dive under the bed couch in the corner. They've most got the range, Swifty, says I. Two feet to the left and you've been a bullseye. What you got your mouth open so wide for? Going to try to catch the next one in your teeth? Swifty didn't have time to uncork any repartee before someone struck the land and outside like they'd come down a flight of folding steps feet foist, and a little sharp-nosed woman with purple flowers in a hat bobs in and squints once at each of us. Say, I don't want to be looked at often like that. It felt like being sampled with a cheese tester. Did Montgomery Smith just come in here, says she. Did he? Don't lie now. Where is he? And the way she joiked them little black eyes around was enough to tear holes in the matting. Lady, says I. Don't lady me, Mr. Fresh, says she, throwing the gimlets my way. And tell that broken-nosed child-stealer over there to take that monkey grin off of his face or I'll scratch his eyes out. Holy chee, yells Swifty, throwing a back somersault through the gym door and snapping the lock on his side. Anything more, miss, says I. We're here to please. Humph, says she. It'd take something better than you to please me. Glad I was born lucky, thinks I, but I thought it under my breath. Is my Monty hiding in that room, says she, jabbing a finger at the gym. Cross my heart, he ain't, says I. I don't believe you could think quick enough to lie, says she, and with that she slips out about as fast as she came in. I didn't stir until I hears her hit the lower hall. Then I bolts the door, goes and calls Swifty down off the top swinging rope, and we comes to a parade rest alongside the couch. Monty, dear Monty, says I, the cyclone's passed out to sea. Come out and give up your rain check. He backs out, feet foist, climbs up on the couch, and drops his chin into his hands for a minute while he gets over the worst of the shock. Say, at foist sight, he won the man you'd think any woman would lose a breath trying to catch, lessen she was his landlady, and that's what I figures out that this female peace disturber was. Monty might have been a winner once, but it was a long spell back. Just then, he was some out of repair. He had a head big enough for a college professor and a crop of hair like an herb doctor, 
but his eyes were puffy underneath, and you could see by the café au lait tint to his face that his liver had been on a long strike. He was fairly thick through the middle, but his legs didn't match the rest of him. They were too thin and too short. If I'd known you was coming, I'd had the scrub lady dust under there, says I. But it won't need it now for a couple of weeks. He made a stab at saying something, but his breath hadn't come back yet. He revives enough, though, to take a look at his clothes. Then he wakes his silk dicer up off of his ears and has a peek at that. It was a punky lid, all right, but it had saved a lot of wear on his cocoa when he made that slide for home plate and struck the wall. Was this a long-distance run or just a hundred-yard sprint, says I? Never mind if it comes hard. I don't blame you a bit for sidestepping a heart-to-heart talk with any such a rough-and-ready converser as your friend. I'd do the same myself. He looks up kind of grateful at that, and sticks out a soft, ladylike paw for me to shake. Say, that wasn't such a slow play, either. He was too groggy to say a word, but he comes pretty near winning me right there. I set Swifty to wake on him with the whisk broom, hands out a glass of ice water, and in a minute or so his voice comes back. Oh, yes, he had one. It was a little shaky, but barring that, it was as smooth as mayonnaise. And language! Why, just telling me how much obliged he was, he near stood the dictionary on its head. There wasn't no doubt of his warm feeling for me by the time he was through. It was almost like being adopted by a rich uncle. Oh, that's all right, says I. You can use that couch any time the disappearing fit comes on. She was hot on the trail, eh, Monty? It was all a painful, absurd error, says he. A mistaken identity, I presume. Permit me to make myself known to you. And he shoves out his card. Rasmuli Pinfoodle, J.R.D. That was the way it read. Long ways from Smith, ain't it? says I. The foist of it sounds like a Persian rug. My Hindu birth name, says he. I'd a bet you won the domestic filler, says I. The pinhoodle is English, ain't it? He smiles like I'd asked him to split a pint with me and says that it was. But the tag on the end, J.R.D., I passes up, says I. Don't stand for judge of rent dodgers, does it? Those letters, says he, making another merry face, represent the symbols of my Vedic progression. If I'd stopped to think once more, I'd fetched that, says I. It was a jolly. I never had the Vedic progression. Anyways, not enough to know it at the time. But I wasn't going to let him stun me that way. Later on, I got next to the fact that he was some kind of a healer, and that the proper thing to do was to call him Doc. Seems he had a four-by-nine office on the top floor back over the studio, and that he was just starting to introduce the Vedic stunt to New York. Mostly he worked the mail-order racket. He showed me his ad in the Sunday personal column, and it was all to the velvet. According to his own specifications, he was a headliner in the East Indian philosophy business, whatever that was. He'd just torn himself away from the crowded heads of Europe for an American tour, and he stood ready to ladle out advice to statesmen, tinker up broken hearts, forecast the future, and map out the road to Wellville for millionaires who'd gone off their feed. 
He sure had a full bag of tricks to draw from, but I noticed that the more glass balls you try to keep in the air at once, the surer you are to queer the act. And Pinfoodle didn't look like a gent that kept the receiving teller working overtime. There was something about him, though, that was kind of dignified. He was the style of chap that would blow his last dime on having his collar and cuffs polished, and would go without eating rather than frisk the free lunch at a beer joint. He was willing to talk about anything but the female with the gimlet eyes and the keen cut of tongue. She is a mistaken, misguided person, says he. And by the way, Professor McCabe, there is a fire escape, I believe, which leads from my office down to your back windows. Would it be presuming too much if I should ask you to admit me there occasionally, in the event of my being, er, pursued again? It ain't a board bill, is it, Doc? says I. Nothing of the kind, I assure you, says he. Glad to hear it, says I. As a rule, I don't run no rock of age's refuge, but I likes to be neighborly, so help yourself. We fixed it up that way, and about every so often I'd see Doc Pinfoodle sliding in the back window with a worried look on his face and iron rust in his trousers. He was a quiet neighbor, though. Didn't torture the cornet or deal in voice culture or get me the cash checks that came back with remarks in red ink written on them. I was wondering how the Vedic stunt was catching on, when all of a sudden he buds out in an eight-dollar hat, this year's model, and begins to lug around an ivory-handled cane. I'm glad they're coming your way, Doc, says I. Thanks, says he. If I can in any measure repay some of the many kindnesses which you have, sponge it off, says I. Maybe I'll want to throw a lady off the scent myself some day. A week or so later I misses him altogether and the janitor tells me he's paid up and moved. Well, they come and go like that, so it don't do to feel lonesome. But I had the floor swept under the couch regular on a chance that he might show up again. It was along about then that I hears about the bull pup. I've been wanting to have one out the Primrose Park, where I goes to prop up the weekend, you know. Pinkney was telling me of a friend of his that owns a likely-looking litter about two months old, so one Saturday afternoon, I starts to hoof it over and size him up. Now that was regular, wasn't it? You wouldn't think a two-eyed man like me could go astray just trying to pick out a bull pup, would you? But look at what I runs into. I'd gone about four miles from home and was hitting up a daddy western clip on the side path when I sees one of them big bay-winded bubbles sliding past like a train of cars. There was a goyle on the back seat that looks kind of natural. She sees me, too, shouts to Francois to put on the emergency brake, and begins waving her parasol at me to hurry on. It was Sadie Sullivan. Hurry up, shorty. Run, she yells. There isn't a minute to lose. I gets up on my toes at that. I hadn't no more than climbed aboard before the machine was tearing up the macadam again. Anybody dying, says I? Or does the bargain counter close at five o'clock? Aunt Tilly's eloping, says she. And if we don't head her off, she'll marry an old villain who ought to be in jail. Not Mr. Pinckney's Aunt Tilly, the old goyle that owns the big place up near Blenmont, says I. That's the one, says Sadie. Why, she's qualified for an old lady's home, says I. You don't mean to say she's got kittenish at her age. 
there's no age limit to that kind of foolishness, says Sadie, and this looks like a serious attack. I've got to stop it, though, for I promised Pinckney that I'd stand guard until he came back from Newport. I hadn't seen the old girl myself, but I knew her record, and now I got it revised to date. She'd hooked two husbands in her time, but neither of em had lasted long. Then she gave it up for a spell, and it wasn't until she was sixty-five that she begins to wear rainbow clothes again, and caper around like one of the squab octet. Lately she begun to show signs of wanting to sit in a shady corner with a man. Pickney had discouraged a bald-headed minister, warned off an old bachelor, and dropped strong hints to a couple of widowers that took to call and frequent for afternoon tea. Then a new one had showed up. He's a sticker, too, says Sadie. I don't know where Aunt Tilly found him, but Pinckney says he's been coming out from the city every other day for a couple of weeks. She's been meeting them at the station and taking him for drives. She says he's some sort of East Indian priest, and that he's given her lessons and a new faith cure that she's taken up. Today, though, after she'd gone off, the housekeeper found that her trunk had been smuggled to the station. Then a note was picked up in her room. It said something about meeting her at the church of St. Paul's in the Wood at 4.30, and was signed, Your Darling Mully. Oh, dear, it's almost half past now. Can you go any faster, Francois? I thought he couldn't, but he did. He jammed the speed lever up another notch, and in a minute more we were hitting only the high places. We caromed against them red leather cushions like a couple of pebbles in a bottle, and it was a case of holding on and hoping the thing would stay right side up. I hadn't waked up much enthusiasm about getting to St. Paul's in the wood before, but I did then all right. Never was so glad to see a church loom up as I was that one. That's her carriage at the chapel door, says Sadie. Shorty, we must stop this thing. It's out of my line, says I, but I'll help all I can. We made a break for the front door and butted right in, just as though they'd sent us cards. It wasn't very light inside, but down at the far end we could see a little bunch of folks standing around as if they was waiting for something to happen. Sadie didn't make any false motions. She sailed down the center aisle and took Aunt Tilly by the arm. She was a dumpy, pie-faced old girl, with plenty of ballast to keep her shoes down, and a lot of genuine store hair that was puffed and waved like the specimens you see in the Sixth Avenue showcases. She was acting kind of nervous and grinning a silly kind of grin, but when she spots Sadie, she quit that and puts on a look like the hired girl wears when she's been caught being kissed by the grocery boy. You haven't done it, have you? says Sadie. No, says Aunt Tilly, but it's going to be done just as soon as the rector gets on his other coat. Now please don't, Mrs. Winfield, says Sadie, getting a waist grip on the old girl and rubbing her cheek up against her shoulder in that purry, coaxing way she has. You don't know how badly we should all feel if it didn't turn out well, and Pinkney... He's a meddlesome, impointinent young scamp, says Aunt Tilly, growing red under the layers of rice powder. Haven't I got a right to marry without consulting him, I'd like to know? Oh, yes, of course, says Sadie, soothing her down. But Pickney says, Don't tell me anything that he says, not a word, she shouts. I won't listen to it. 
he had the impudence to suggest that my dear Mully was a, a corn doctor or something like that. Did he, says Sadie. I wouldn't have thought it of Pinckney. Well, just to show him that he was wrong, I would put this affair off until you can have a regular church wedding, with invitations and ushers and pretty flower girls. And you ought to have a gray silk wedding gown. You look perfectly stunning in gray silk, you know. Wouldn't all that be much nicer than running off like this, as though you were ashamed of something? Say, it was a slick game of talk that Sadie handed out then, for she was playing for time. But Aunt Tilly was no come on. Molly doesn't want to wait another day, says she, and neither do I, so that settles it. And here comes the rector now. Looks like we played out our hand, don't it? I whispered to Sadie. Wait, says she. I want to get a good look at the man. He was trailing along after the minister, and it wasn't until he was within six feet of me that I saw who it was. Hello, Doc, says I. So you're the dear Mully, are you? He near jumped through his collar, Pinfoodle did, when he gets his lamps on me. It only lasted a minute, though, for he was a quick recoverer. Why, Professor, says he, this is an unexpected pleasure. I guess some of that's right, says I. And say, but he was dressed for the joyful bridegroom part. Striped trousers, frock coat, white puff tie, and white gloves. He'd had a close shave and a shampoo, and the massage artist had rubbed out some of the swelling from under his eyes. Didn't look much like the has-been that done the dive under the couch at the studio. Well, well, says I, this is where the private cinch comes in, eh? Doc, you've got a head like a horse. I should think he'd be ashamed of himself, says Sadie, running off with the silly old woman who might be his mother. The Sullivan temper had got the best of her. After that, the deep lard was all over the cook stove. Aunt Tilly throws four cat fits to the minute and lets loose on Sadie with all kinds of polite jabs that she can lay a tongue to. Then Doc steps up, puts a manly arm halfway around a belt line, and lets a weep on the silk facing of his Sunday coat. By this time, the preacher was all broke up. He was a nice, healthy-looking young chap, one of the strawberry blonde kind, with pink and white cheeks, and hair as soft as a toy spaniel's. It turns out that he was new to the job, and this was his first call to spiel off the splicing service. I trust, says he, that there is nothing, er, that no one has any valid objection to the uniting of this couple. I will convince you of that, says Doc Pinfoodle, speaking up brisk and cocky, by putting to this young lady a few poignant questions. Well, he did. As a cross-examiner for the defense, he was a regular Joe Choate. Inside of two minutes he'd made torn mosquito netting of Sadie's kick, showing her up for a rank outsider, and put us both through the ropes. Now, says he, with a kind of calm, satisfied, I've swallowed the canary smile, we will proceed with the ceremony. Sadie was near crying with the mad in her, she being a hard loser at any game. You're an old fraud, that's what you are, she spits out, and you're just marrying Pinckney's silly old aunt to get her money. But that rolls off dark like a damage suit off him a corporation. He just smiles back at her and goes to choking up Aunt Tilly. Doc was it and knew where he stood. 
he had us down and out. In five minutes more, he'd have a two-hundred-pound wife and fifty-thousand-dollar income. It strikes me, says he, over his shoulder, that if I'd got hold of a fortune in the way you got yours, young woman, I wouldn't make any comments about mercenary marriages. Well, say, up to that time I had a half-baked idea that maybe I wasn't called on to block this little game. But when he begins to rub it into Sadie, I sours on Doc right away. And it always does to take one or two good punches to warm me up to a scrap. I begins to do some swift thinking. Hold on there, Doc, says I. I'll give in that you've got our case quashed as it stood. But maybe there's someone else that's got an interest in these doings. Ah, says he, and who might that be? Mrs. Montgomery Smith, says I. It was a chance shot, but it rung the bell. Doc goes as limp as a straw hat that's been hooked up after a dip in the bay, and his eyes took on that shifty look they had the first time I ever saw him. Why, says he, swallowing hard and doing his best to get back the stiff front he'd been putting up. Why, there's no such poison. No, says I. How about the one that calls you Monty and runs you under the couch? It's a lie, says he. She's nothing to me, nothing at all. Oh, well, says I. That's between you and her. She says different. Anyway, she's come clear up here to put in her bid, so it's no more than fair to give her a show. I'll just bring her in. As I starts toward the front door, Doc gives me one look to see if I mean business. Then, Sadie says, he turns the color of pie crust, drops Antilly as if she were a live wire, and jumps through the back door like he'd been kicked by a mule. I got back just in time to see him hoidle a five-foot hedge without stirring a leaf, and the last glimpse we got of him, he was heading for a stretch of woods up Connecticut way. Looks like you just missed assisting at a case of bigamy, says I to the young preacher, as we go bringing Antilly out of her faint. Shocking, says he, shocking, as he fans himself with a hymn book. He was taking it hard. Aunt Tilly wouldn't speak to any of us, and as we bundled her into her carriage and sent her home, she looked as mad as a settin' hen with a feet tied. Shorty, says Sadie on the way back, that was an elegant bluff you put up. Lucky my hand wasn't called, says I, but it was rough on the preacher chap, wasn't it? He had his mouth all made up to marry someone. Blamed if I didn't want to offer him a job myself. And who would you have picked out, Shorty? says she. Well, says I, looking her over wishful, there ain't never been but one goyle that I'd choose for a side partner, and she's out of my class now. Was her name Sullivan once? says she. It was, says I. She didn't say anything more for a spell after that and I didn't. But there's times when conversation don't fit in. All I know is that you can sit just as close on the back of one of them big benzine carts as you can on a parlor sofa. And with Sadie snuggled up against me, I felt like it was always going to be summer, with Seuss's band playing somewhere behind the rubber trees. First thing I knows, we fetches up at my shack in Primrose Park, and I was standing on the horse block alongside the bubble. Sadie dropped both hands on my shoulders and was turning them eyes of hers on me at close range. 
Francois was looking straight ahead, and there wasn't anyone in sight. So I just took a good look into that pair of Irish blues. "'What a chump you are, Shorty,' she whispers. "'Ah, quit your kidding,' says I. But I didn't make any move, and she didn't. "'Well, good-bye,' says she, letting out a long breath. "'Bye-bye, Sadie,' says I, and off she goes. "'Say, I don't know how it was, but I've been feeling ever since that I'd missed something that was coming to me. Maybe it was that bull pup I forgot to buy. End of chapter 14